It's lovely to, to be able to share from the scriptures with you this morning and uh, to, to see what uh, we have in store from uh, 1 John. If I was to ask you a question and say, what would you consider to be some of the most revolutionary or transformative moments in the history of society. You may think to some of those radio programs, the history of the world in a hundred objects uh, that's been on Radio 4 or uh, some innovation. As I was just reflecting on this, there could be a whole bunch of them and, and depending on your perspective of which you think is most significant. I guess the invention of the wheel was quite important. I mean, logs were there that rolled beforehand, but when cutting them into slices, you could make wheels. Pretty important, I guess. What about uh, being able to make fire kind of on demand? Pretty important, don't you think? Yeah? What about uh, the invention of electricity? That's quite a big revolution. Splitting the atom. I won't ask for what you think, but I'm sure you'd think there are some revolutionary moments. And indeed there are. The passage we're going to read in 1 John, I mean all scripture is powerful. But the passage we're going to read in 1 John is one of those wonderful, profound, revolutionary passages. But it's more than just one of those things. You know, you could think of... Uh, of islands without electricity or places who've gone off the grid and you kind of think, well, they're okay without this. But this passage speaking about Jesus is more than revolutionary. It is regenerative. More than regenerative, it is about rebirth. That what we would describe as life-transforming moments are about this passage. And indeed, each of us who come to know Jesus Christ could testify that a revolutionary, a regenerative, a rebirth moment has happened and continues in us. And the invitation, if you're still with me at the start, if you've not known that in your experience yet, today can be one of those revolutionary transforming times. So let's hear what the scriptures say. And I hope it makes sense. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 to 24. Phil really kindly and wonderfully preached on this last week and, and spoke of, uh, of world-changing, perspective-changing things. We carry on. Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. 
The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it is by the Spirit he gave us. I've called uh, this message, titled it with three words, love, live life, or love, live life, love, live life. In many ways, this uh, verse 18 is, is a hinge that connects what uh, Phil was uh, speaking on last week and what John speaks to us, and in the broader theme of this message about uh, of being mended, of the Apostle John mending us, causing us to find those bits that have come loose or afraid or have, 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 need to be knitted, netted together again, to be mended in our understanding and faith and security in the gospel as we re-engage in fresh ways in mission. The subject, of course, in so much of John and in these verses itself is love. Love. And verse 18 and 19 are pretty radical. When we love with truth and action, this reassures our hearts before God that we are in the truth. Faith and works, as James would describe it. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. He's not saying we shouldn't speak in love. Of course we should. But he's saying love that is Christian love, that is gospel-centered, that is inspired by the Spirit, we'll get to that, always wells up in an outflow of that love that we know in our heart. Without that action, without that truth engagement, we could say that actually we have dead faith, dead love. And neither dead love or dead faith does any good to ourselves or to one another. If you've uh, ever been in love and uh, gazed adoringly at your, your husband or wife or partner-to-be, you may have said these words, I would die for you. Everyone's looking slightly blank at that. You unlovely lot. I would die for you, darling. Sounds noble and spiritual. And of course, there is an ultimate sacrifice. We see as we come to the table that dying for another is the greatest expression of love. That word that we have from Greek that holds that together, agape love, self-sacrificial, emptying ourselves completely for the benefit of another. It sounds and it is noble and it is awesome. But while you may be willing to die for someone as an ultimate expression. Often the gospel is worked out in much smaller ways, but just as profound. Would you give me something to eat? Could you share with me an extra shirt, or better yet, a coat? Could you let me sleep 
in your spare room until I get back on my feet. Could you help me out with my utility bills or with some childcare? You see, of course, we are called to love. And the example is, is of course, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. But often we don't need people to die for us every day. We just need a little help. You've heard that phrase, talk is cheap. It's a modern saying. And I guess that concept is here. If we love, but it isn't engaged in action, it's cheap talk. John, again in modern phraseology, gets down to it where the rubber hits the road and provides us some basic, real, and practical advice about love in the context of everyday living. He says that what goes on in our hearts controls our hands. Out of the wellspring of our heart flows our attitudes and actions and deeds. A closed heart always results in closed hands. And is evidence that your heart has never been opened by the power and the wonder of the gospel of God's grace poured out abundantly in Jesus Christ. An open heart results in open hands. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Open hands with an open heart. I love how through the history of the church, the revolutionary nature of Christians who have discovered Jesus are always being demonstrated with his open-handedness and open-heartedness. Education, the priority of, of seeing other people being able to learn and grow and come to their full potential, pioneered and, and sustained again and again by people of faith. Hospitals, rooted to the word of hospitality, of that generous, you are welcome, you are going to be cared for and be made whole again. Always Christians involved in caring and loving and healing. Social action again and again throughout our ages of feeding the hungry, of clothing the poor, of giving refuge and safety to the refugee and the alien on the cutting edge. Open heart, open hands, love, love with action and with truth. Now, let's be real. It's not easy, is it? I'm being very idealistic. It's easier to say, let's do this, than to do it. But we're called to it, nevertheless. At the heart of love is serving others as we have been served by Jesus. At the heart of this, we have been served by Jesus and he calls, come and join in. Sometimes it is public and it's noble and it's noteworthy and we'll be celebrated for it. 
but most often it's private and unnoticed. But it's still a challenge. Richard Foster nails it in in his wonderful book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, in some ways, we prefer to hear Jesus call to to deny father and mother houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure, but in service, we experience many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the seemingly trivial. I was talking this week with a colleague, and in the last 18 months, he has um, been shortlisted and interviewed for two really significant roles, one in the mission sphere and one in a European uh, position in, in kind of, uh, of overseeing, um, I won't say too much because you might be able to work out what and who. But it was kind of in, in a leadership role over a, a kind of Baptist thing in the European kind of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not the union. Continent, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> a group of nations. And he got to the final two, and in both of them, both of them, they went for another candidate. And he was, re- particularly on this last one, he was really gutted. It's taken 18 months to get there because of COVID, and he's, he was really disappointed. And he's, he's taking some time, time out, and I spoke to him this week, and he said, I've been on retreat, and one of the things the Lord has said to me, he said, in my heart, I like to be the one who seems to win and be accomplished and acclaimed. And the Lord's telling me, I want to hide you. And I want you to learn to serve without being celebrated and lauded and being pick of the pops. I want you to serve unnoticed. And he gulped. He's learning to love. He's a loving man anyway, but he's learning to love yet more. Love requires service. Service involves humility. And loving others in humble service gives us, this is what John says, loving others in humble service gives us an assurance that we belong to Jesus. It doesn't make us belong to Jesus. That comes through belief. We'll see that in a moment. But this serving, this stepping out in loving service of Acting with word and deed, this open hands, open heart reassures us that we belong to him. Isn't that astonishing? Doesn't that sound like a life worth living? A path worth pursuing? Living in the gospel means having open ears and open eyes and open hands to those around us, especially the hurting. Picking up a little bit of the text that Philip preached on last week, the commentator John Stott summarized it well. Hatred characterizes the worlds whose prototype is Cain, mentioned in the verses previously. Hatred originates in the devil and issues in its 
culmination in murder. And its sign and evidence is spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Jesus Christ. It originates in God and issues in self-sacrifice and is evidence of eternal life. Don't just talk love, demonstrate love. Jesus just didn't come to tell us he did something. And in a few moments, we'll break bread and pour out the cup to retell of what he did for each one of us. Love, live life. From time to time, in my own experience and in talking and pastoring others, when we walk with Jesus, we get to this place that we find in our heart a condemnation. Have you found this? You can't really be a believer. A doubt settles in. You've become self-condemnatory. Maybe because of a whole bunch of factors. You've made a promise to Jesus. You're walking and something happens. You do something. You think something. Something happens in your experience that causes a doubt in your heart to condemn you. Sometimes it's to do with the Eeyore type people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? There are certain characteristics who just seem quite down on themselves. You come across them? Not in here, I know. But... Um, some people are just more introspective. Sometimes people are more melancholy and find it hard to look up. Sometimes this attitude of the heart can change because of a question of, of health. How a person feels or the pressures upon, uh, upon which we are living through affects how we think. You know, this consistent stress or worry or depression it's like clouds, or people talk about the black dog that never leaves, or it becomes really hard to see hope. Maybe due to a specific sin. It may be to do with circumstances, but whatever the cause, the problem can be a real one, and it can be quite widespread. How, as believers, do we deal with such doubt? Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us. There are two things I need to say on this. The first is that sometimes our hearts rightly condemn us. John in his gospel talks about the Holy Spirit working in our heart, pricking our conscience. And about the judgment that's to come and, and, and causing us to become aware of our, of our wrongdoing, of our sin, of how far we've fallen short. That that is a work of God. Sometimes our hearts rightly condemn us. That we, we need to be alert to the promptings of our heart. We need to be soft-hearted to the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't, we become hard-hearted. And we, we don't see actually that sin make matters at all happens when we become caught up in habits, closed up and closed-hearted. Our conscience can call us out 
And God, in his grace, by his Holy Spirit and mercy, can help us recognize that, to come back to repentance, to come back to God and, and say sorry and turn from it again and again to see these things overcome and conquered. Verse 17 tells us that he, that he will motivate us in this regard. He sees everything. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the deepest memory and the darkest secret. He knows everything. He knows us better than ourselves. And because of that, he draws close to challenges to say, this isn't the life that I caused you to live. He inspires us and encourages us and challenges us to put it right. On the one hand, our heart does condemn us when the Holy Spirit is at work. But also, our heart can condemn us because it isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. Our conscience may also be too severe. It may hold us in that place of guilt and shame of being unable to forgive ourselves, of being unable to move on, of being unable. You are not worthy to receive the love of God. There was a, a, a guy that I, I used to know in my old church. He would turn up uh, most, well, not most, a lot of services at whatever time of day, morning or evening, pretty drunk, and sit outside by the notice board and tell me he was in the Navy and the submarines, and he never quite got around to saying what he'd done. But there was something that happened and he said, I can never be forgiven. And the amount of times I sat with him one evening on a Christmas Eve, suicidal, and he said, I, I just should end it. I can't, be, I can't move forward. And he never got the truth of there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. He never could grasp that God is greater than every sin. He could never understand and recognize that God knows all, even the worst, and He is the perfect judge, and Jesus bears it for others, us. And none of the believers' failures or the sinners' failures or successes have, uh, success, successes have escaped His notice. This is the difference between his, our conscience and the fact that he knows everything and is still graceful and still merciful towards us. Isn't that astonishing? And he still accepts us in Christ Jesus. If you want revolution in your life, grasp that again. If you want rebirth in your life, God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our mess-ups. God is greater than our failures. When your conscience sends you on a guilt trip, John says, look in faith to Jesus. God is greater than the wavering and the doubting and the vacillating and, and assures us Totally and completely that he forgives us. At this table, know it afresh. You are forgiven. You are restored. 
You are redeemed. You are set free. Not just words, but in the action of what Jesus did on the cross in dying to, to, to win the victory even over death itself. Thank you, Mr. Pentecostal. Once and for all, complete, perfect. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Love and live. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commandments. Look at that. Olympic goals. Thank you. John wants to say to us, loving others as we've been loved by Jesus assures us that we're in the truth. Even when we don't do it perfectly, God says, trust me, not your conscience. Our conscience isn't infallible. It's not always correct, but he is. We can be confident in God, we can be confident when we pray. Even if you're not prayed, even if you think he'd turn your ba- his back on you, you think, why would he listen to me? He'd listen to some of these saintly people I sit with every week in church. What? But I'm not like them. You're not looking at Jesus who says, come to me. When you pray, say, See, when we grasp the gospel, we look away from our own experience, our feelings, our self-base, and look to the one who says there is no condemnation for those in Christ. I see who I am in Christ Jesus, and in that I have confidence. Love and live. Even when we're shocked by our own lack of love and our, uh, that we, we, we're not actually very good at putting this open hand and this, these, these, this faith commitment into action. When we're shocked about that, John still encourages us to see it as a sign of grace. In spite of everything, we know our faith is true, not because of wishful thinking or blind faith, but rather, as 1 John 3, 6, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So in verse 23 and 24, summing up, Jesus, when asked what is the great, greatest of commandments, expressed in John's gospel again and again, first there must be this explicit belief in the Son, Jesus Christ, Did you hear it? And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. I can't get any clearer than that. Don't see the need for Jesus, you won't know God. You won't receive eternal life. 
You won't walk in the purposes and plans that God our Father has created for us, purposed for us. Christianity is explicit and unique and exclusive, but it's for each one of us, universal. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you? If you don't, please do. Not because I say it, but because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And explicitly linked to that. Don't divide them. And to love one another as he has commanded us. To believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus, is to place your trust and your faith, your life in Him and only Jesus. Don't hedge your bets because the others will fail. To believe that Jesus is the divine Son of the Father who has come, the sinless, perfect human being, the perfect atonement to rescue you. Trust all of yourself to him. Not part, not most, all. If you don't trust in the biblical Jesus, you're not putting a trust in anyone at all. So live, love, live, and life. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, John 13, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. You can tell John is writing the same, you know, John's gospel and one John. It's kind of the same. It doesn't really leave much wiggle room. John addresses us, calls us to love, to get in the habit of loving, to live in love, and also to live life. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. You see, the Holy Spirit is the wonderful gift of the Father and the Son who comes and indwells in us. We're not left kind of like wandering around just waiting and waiting and waiting. He is with us. His Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit inspires inspires us to confess Jesus Christ, to name him as our Savior and Lord, to trust him. And he is the one who helps us stumbling and, and, and learning to do this open-handed thing. He is the one that enables us to love self-sacrificially. It just doesn't come very naturally to us. 
You see it right from toddlers. It's mine. Can't play with that. Get off it. And that is replicated again and again in every generation, in every culture, big politics and family life. But the Holy Spirit initiates this reform, this regeneration, this rebirth that says, I'm now secure in him and I can now live open-handed because I'm trusting that he is good for me and I'm happy to give. I'm happy to love. The world may say it's stupid and weak, but it's the Jesus way. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one who empowers us to love the unlovely. To not recoil, to not draw back, to stay resolutely committed for the long haul without a claim. The Spirit is at work in us. Do you know that? Indwelling us. He's a wonderful, wonderful gift. Philip last week had a jug and uh, some water. So I thought I'd bring the water and the glass back. It's an illustration that um, D.L. Moody was, was asked about. He was a, an evangelist in America. I've got a lot of water here. And uh, in a, a talk, he, he wanted to express something to those, and I thought this would be helpful. So to the gathered congregation, he said, tell me, how do you get the air out of this glass? And people looked a little bit quizzical and wondered, and and one person stuck up his hand and he said, you could suck out the air with a pump. And Moody replied, that would do it, but it would create a, a vacuum and the glass would shatter. Lots of suggestions came, and people were very uh, kind of thoughtful. But Moody's picked up a jug of water, and he filled up the glass, and he said, look, the air is removed. You see, what he was driving at, and I'll try not to spill it, what he was driving at is this. When we are called to walk with him, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, if we try and do it on our own right, it's just like trying, I've got to get rid of this sin and I've got to put this out of my life. And, and we end up kind of being, just kind of being so empty and vacuous. But what the gospel says is rather we are filled with the Spirit and it displaces fills us with the love of God. More of Him means less of us. May the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, fill us afresh to love and to live life. Let's pray together.